I wanted to begin uh, this morning by mentioning two things related to the coronavirus. First of all, I wanted you to understand just how difficult a decision this was for the leadership team and the board to decide that we would close our doors to the crowd. Uh, we prayed about this for several days. We talked about it for several days. It was not an easy decision. Uh, in fact, toward the middle of the week on Wednesday, I was still leaning toward opening our doors to the crowd. But then, as we got news about the governor announcing that it's not a good idea for large groups to meet, and other health officials were saying similar things. And then we began to watch how some of the states around us were banning large groups. In Maryland, groups are not allowed to meet if they have over 250. In Ohio, it's 100. And we considered that uh, it would be irresponsible for us to meet. There are a couple things that are a little bit unique about our church. One is that we're a larger church. And so this is a large gathering. And second, <clears throat> there are so many in our congregation that are involved in the medical field. And of course, in Morgantown, we have some regional hospitals and people are coming from all over. And so we felt like the most loving thing to do would be to close our doors for the large group gathering. So we're grateful that we have this opportunity to come to you through live stream and online. It's just a wonderful privilege we have with the technology that we have these days. But I wanted to mention this because I wanted you to understand that our decision was not a decision that was made out of panic or fear. It really was a decision that was made on the idea that this is the very best thing that we could do the best decision. And in the meantime, we're just gonna keep trusting God for whatever the future might hold. The second thing I wanted to mention related to the coronavirus was that the president has declared today a national day of prayer, and I, I just wanna encourage us to be praying. In 2 Chronicles 7 and verse 14, we read, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and I'll heal their land. And we know that sometimes God allows things to happen in our world or in our country or in our very lives that he's trying to get our attention and he wants to do a work in and through this thing. And so I just encourage you to be praying and we wanna be praying as well. Uh, before I begin my talk today, I wanted to spend just a moment in prayer, especially for those that are on the front lines of this uh, virus the healthcare workers and those that while the rest of us are kind of safe at home and avoiding crowds, there are some that find themselves right in the midst of it. And so I'd, let's just take a minute and pray for those and then we'll uh, jump into our talk this morning. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you are God and that you are sovereign and nothing, nothing, oh Lord, catches you by surprise. And we don't understand all that's happening or all that you have in mind, O oh Lord, but we do acknowledge that you're good and that you're able to turn all things out for the good. And at this time, we do want to lift up especially those who are on the front lines of this virus, ones who might be confronting it, ones that might even be infected and not know it at this time. We just pray for your protection of them. We pray for your grace for them. If they're infected, we ask you for your healing of them. We know, O oh Lord, that you are able and so we just, we just look to you, God, and we want to humble our hearts and come before you and present our case to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, I want to talk about the gospel message, the good news. In fact, good news at a time like this is especially important 
But the gospel message is this message that we can get right with God if we put our faith in Jesus Christ, that through Jesus Christ and faith in him, we can have eternal life. In addition to that, Jesus said, I came that you might have life and might have it abundantly. And so through Jesus Christ, we can experience an abundant life as well as eternal life. And that truly is good news. But I wanna talk today about two things related to this gospel message. The first one is this. I wanna clarify exactly what the message is. I wanna raise the question, exactly what should a person believe in order to have eternal life? What are the essential elements that they need to believe? The second thing I wanna talk about, and it may be the more, the emphasis this morning, is on the importance of us, if we know Jesus Christ, of sharing the message with other people. And this is kind of a hard thing for us to do, to communicate our faith with other people. Uh, the first time that I ever shared my faith with someone else was when I was in middle school. I think I was about 13 years old. It was my last year of middle school, or it might have been the year before, I'm not sure which. But our church had what was called revival services, and we had a special speaker come in, and, and this speaker came in every night of the week and, and challenged us with, ver with various things. But one of the things that the speaker talked about was that if, if we are Christians, if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that we need to share Christ with other people, that other people need to know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through him. But I remember as a 13-year-old boy, as I was listening to this speaker speak, I remember thinking, I can't do that. I'm afraid to do that. I don't want to do that. It's one of the few times in my life where I heard something that I knew was in the Bible, but I made a decision in my heart. I refused to do that thing. I, I did not want to talk with anyone about my faith in Christ. Part of it had to do with the fact that I was a preacher's kid, as it was, and I just hated that. And part of it had to do with the fact that I just didn't want people to think I was crazy or weird. And so I decided I wasn't going to do it. About three weeks after this happened, though, I found myself in a situation where I was talking with one of my fellow students seated right next to me, and before we were done, he ended up putting his faith in Christ. Something changed. Now, before I explain what happened with that, I'm gonna tell you the end of that story when I get to the end of my talk. But I wanna talk today about this, this responsibility that I feel that we have to communicate our faith with other people. Now, if you've been following along with us, we've been in a series titled, Why We? This is a series about why we do certain things as believers in Christ, as Christians. It's also a series about which we're hoping you'll do things with us. We're hoping you'll join with us in doing these things. What are those things? Well, the first week we talked about serving. That we should use the gifts and talents and abilities that God has given to us to serve both within the church and outside the church. And especially during this crisis, there may be opportunities for us to selflessly serve. The second week of the series, we talked about giving, the idea of being generous with our wealth. And again, during this particular season where things are really up in the air, it's gonna be a challenge for us to exercise faith. Do I believe that God will continue to provide for me? Do I believe that I can continue to give and that God will bless me? But giving is something God asks of us to do. The third week of the series, we talked about connecting, connecting with other believers in community. 
And the fourth week of the series, which is this week, we wanted to talk about inviting, specifically inviting people into a relationship with Jesus Christ, or else inviting them to some function that the church is doing where they'll hear about Jesus Christ. Now, this second one, for the time being, is put, being put on hold. And so today, I want to talk about just inviting people to faith in Christ. What message do we need to share? And we can learn from the example of Jesus. Now, this is a hard thing again to do, to talk with other people about faith in Christ for a number of reasons. First of all, our culture has convinced us that there are two subjects you're never supposed to talk about. One of them is politics, and the other one is religion. And I have to admit that when you get into discussions about those two subjects, things can get heated. Oftentimes, it is a problem. And so that's something we wrestle with. Second, sharing our faith with someone else is scary. We don't want to be identified as somebody that's like a Jesus freak or something like that. And then third, I think it's challenging for us to communicate our faith because maybe we don't know what to say. We don't, we don't know how to communicate the message or we're afraid that we'll be asked questions. And so for these reasons, I think we keep silent about our faith. Our culture shut us down, we're afraid and maybe we don't know the message. But today I wanna to look at the example of Jesus. Jesus got involved with a conversation with a religious leader named Nicodemus. And we learn something about how he approached the subject. We learn about what he had to say to Nicodemus. And he did an amazing job of bringing Nicodemus to a point where I believe he eventually put his faith in Christ. Our story is found in John chapter three. So if you wanna follow along, we're gonna be in John three most of the time this morning. This again is a story that Jesus had with a religious leader of his day named Nicodemus. Now Nicodemus was very highly respected. He was considered to be an expert in religious matters. Nicodemus likely would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. And if that doesn't seem like a big deal, Look at Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's quite remarkable. He probably had that memorized verbatim, and he knew the rest of the Old Testament inside and out. And yet, when Jesus met Nicodemus, one of the first things he did was expose a need in Nicodemus' life. Now, I'm convinced that there are three things that a person needs to understand in order to have a clear grasp of what the gospel message is. Three things that are important. And the first one is this, that we have to understand our problem. It's a problem of sin. It's a problem of the fact that we blow it many times. Now, people these days don't like the word sin, but the word simply means to miss the mark. All of us miss the mark when it comes to being like God, when it comes to being holy, when it comes to be, being righteous. All of us blow it in many ways. We blow it in our thoughts, in our words, in interactions all the time. And this is why we need, of course, a savior. Jesus began his conversation with this religious leader by exposing that need in his life. Because even though Nicodemus was this religious leader and he's someone others looked up to, he didn't have it. He did not understand what a person needed in order to be right with God. Let's begin reading the story in John chapter three, beginning in verse one where we read, there was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. 
This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Let me stop here for a moment. The Pharisees were a religious sect. They were very, very strict. A scholar by the name of Borchard writes about the Pharisees. John's description of Nicodemus, of him, marks him not merely as a community leader, but as one of the revered 70 who, along with the high priest, composed the Sanhedrin, the equivalent of the Jewish Supreme Court. In other words, this guy was kind of a big deal. He's someone that we would regard as a spiritual giant. Now, this, come, this guy comes to Jesus at night uh, some have suggested that the reason that he came to Jesus at night is because he was embarrassed to be seen talking with Jesus. But it's possible that the reason he did this was just that he wanted to spend time alone with Jesus and knew there wouldn't be crowds. We don't know for sure. What we do know is that he recognized something about Jesus that his, his friends, the other Pharisees, probably would not have recognized. He came up to Jesus and he said these words, Rabbi which literally means great one. It's a reference to a great teacher. And so he calls Jesus great one, a rabbi. He said, we know that you have come from God because no one could do the miracles you do unless God were with him. Now that's an amazing admission. admission. His colleagues would not have admitted this, but, but Nicodemus, it shows, was open in his heart to the potential that Jesus Christ had come, come from God. Now, one thing I've learned over the years when it comes to sharing my faith with someone else is that it really matters that they be open. If someone is not open about hearing about Jesus Christ, I don't, I don't continue to push it. It's not our job to shove our religion down someone's throat, but sometimes people are ripe, they're open, they want to hear what you have to say, and I think this was the case of Nicodemus. And so he says, we know you've come from God. Jesus responds in kind of a unique way, and it points to the problem that we're addressing, the first point that's essential, I think, to our understanding of how to get right with God. The problem is sin. Jesus said these words. He didn't use the word sin at this point. It actually comes in later. But he points to Nicodemus' spiritual need in verse 3. We read, Jesus replied, I assure you, Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless someone is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. He re began his reply by saying, I assure you. In the original Greek language in which the New Testament was written, this is a very strong way of saying, I am telling you the truth. Pay attention to this. Unless someone is born again, they will not see the kingdom of heaven. Why did Jesus say that? He was trying to expose Nicodemus' need. Nicodemus probably did not recognize that he had a spiritual need in his life, which is oftentimes the problem when we're kind of from a religious background or we regard ourselves as good people. Oftentimes I've found, in fact, when I want to talk with someone about Christ, that if there's someone who's really religious or if there's someone who views him or herself as a good person, it's really hard to talk about the gospel because the starting point many times is this idea, we've all sinned. And people don't want to regard themselves as ones who have broken God's laws. I think people realize they do things that are wrong. They just don't see themselves as sinners. 
And so Jesus at this point, I think, points at Nicodemus and says, you know, you need to be born again. We all need to be born again or, or you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. Now, I think the way Jesus worded this was very intriguing to Nicodemus. He did not know what Jesus was talking about, and so we continue the story. In verse 4, we read, But how can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? I don't know, by the way, if he's being a little bit sarcastic here or if he's really wondering the logistics of the matter. It does sound impossible. He continues, Jesus, or continues in verse 5, Jesus answered, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be, asked Nicodemus? Are you a teacher of Israel and don't understand these things? That last question, by the way, that Jesus asks can be translated this way. Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? What is Jesus talking about here? Nicodemus was asking, well, just how does a new birth take place? And he was thinking in terms of physical birth. And Jesus had to point out, no, what I'm talking about here is the need for a spiritual birth. The essence is this, that two births are necessary if a person is to inherit eternal life. Two births, not just one. Now, we understand, of course, what physical birth is like. A baby is born to physical parents as a physical baby. We understand how that works. We say, well, that child has been born. Jesus was using that as an analogy to say in the same way, we need to be born, but not physically, spiritually. And it's a different kind of birth. It's a, it's a kind of birth that you cannot see with your eyes. You know, flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. The example Jesus used was the wind. You know, with the wind, you can't see it. You just can't see the wind. All you could see is the effect of wind. You could see that the, the wind has life in a sense. It is blowing on the trees. And so you can look out a window and you can tell that the wind is blowing. You don't see the wind, but you see the effect of it. You see the life of the wind blowing on the tree. It's the same way, spiritually speaking. Jesus was acknowledging the fact that we need to have a spiritual birth where the life of the Holy Spirit is infused inside of a person. You need to have a physical birth, of course, where the, the physical life is in you, but you also need a spiritual birth where the Holy Spirit breathes eternal life into you. And Nicodemus did not have that. Now you say, how does this relate to the problem? Well, I told you that the problem is sin. Well, sin is the reason that we need a spiritual birth. And Jesus is going to talk more about that before the conversation is done. Here's what I want us to understand about the sin problem, though. We can't fix it. Just like you do not give birth to yourselves, it is outside of you. Someone else has to give you birth. It's the same way, spiritually speaking. God is the one who births us. And we cannot fix the problem of our sinfulness. We cannot clean ourselves up. 
Even if, if we're good people, we're good people who commit sin. Even if we're people who go to church every week, we're church people who happen to be also sinful. And it's sinfulness that separates us from our creator. The Apostle Paul described the fact that in our sin, we're spiritually dead, and that's why we need to be made alive, alive, and it's something that only God can do. But it's important for us to understand the problem is sin. The second important truth that we need to understand, the second part of this message that's absolutely essential is that the solution is Jesus, and it's because of two things. It's because of who he was, and it's because of what he came to do. Let me talk about both of these things. The solution is Jesus because of who he was and what he came to do. Skipping to verse 13, Jesus continues to talk to Nicodemus, and he says this, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. No one has ascended, no one has risen into heaven except the one who came down or descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, Jesus is alluding to the fact that he's going to be returning up to heaven soon. And we know that after Jesus died and was buried and then raised again from the dead, he spent 40 days with his closest friends, and then he ascended. But do you see what Jesus is claiming here with Nicodemus? He's saying, I came from there. The reason I'm returning is that that's where I came from. I'm not of this earth. Jesus was claiming to not be an ordinary man. He was claiming to be God in the flesh, which is an amazing, amazing claim. I came from heaven. But also, he used a title for himself that set him apart as being divine. It's a title that many scholars believe came from the Old Testament book of Daniel, where Daniel saw a vision in heaven of this one who looked like a man, who was ushered into the presence of the Almighty God and was allowed to rule forever and ever and ever. We read about it in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given authority to rule and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. This title, Son of Man, was a messianic title that the Jews understood, referred to the Messiah who was coming but it's also a title that refers to the fact that he would be God. Because this describes him as someone who not only has entered into the presence of the Lord God Almighty, but someone who's going to rule forever and ever and ever. And the only one that's going to rule forever is God. Now, that's the identity of this Jesus. Now, why does that matter? Well, as we're going to see in a little bit, if, if Jesus was not God, he would not have been sinless and therefore, he could not be our savior. If someone is going to deliver us from the penalty of our sin, that person had to be sinless himself, and he had to be God. And so God sent his son Jesus into this world. He's the son of God and God the son, and he lived a sinless life. But what he did is also essential to this story. You remember I said the solution is Jesus because of who he was the Son of God and God the Son, but also because of what he came to do. What did he come to do? In John 3, 14 and 15, the very next verses, Jesus says this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, 
So the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus referred to an Old Testament story where Moses put this, this bronze serpent on a pole and, and the people that looked up at it were healed. They were given life. And Jesus said, so the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. Now, when Jesus said this to Nicodemus, Nicodemus did not know that the cross was coming. I don't think it was until after Jesus died and rose again that Nicodemus realized that's what Jesus was talking about. But this is a, a remarkable story that Jesus is using here, and it comes from Numbers chapter 21. It's a story where we read how the Israelites in the Old Testament had come out of Egypt, they were with Moses, and they continued to grumble and complain, and they continued to disobey God. On occasion, they even turned to other idols. And on one occasion, while they were grumbling and complaining against God, God sent some serpents, some snakes, some vipers among the people who bit some of them. And those who were bitten were dying. And so they called out to God and they called out to Moses, pray for us. They didn't know what to do. And God gave Moses these instructions in Numbers 21 and verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and mounted it on a pole. Whenever anyone was bitten and he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. Jesus used this illustration to illustrate what he was about to do. In the Old Testament, as people were dying, if they looked upon this bronze snake, they experienced a healing. Just as Moses put that, that serpent, that bronze serpent on the pole, and by the way, bronze is the medal of judgment. He put that on the pole. In the same way, Jesus was saying, I'm gonna hang on the pole as well. I'm gonna die as well. I'm gonna be the source of life for those who look upon me. Now this story in the Old Testament reinforces my first point, that the, the penalty of sin is death. You know, we look at the fact that people were dying because of their sin here. But this is the consequence of all sin. In Romans 6, 23, we read the wages of sin is death. You know what a wage is? It's what you get when you work a job. You're not surprised when you get paid for what you do. And the consequences of our sin is death, physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. And physical death, by the way, is not an end. It's a separation. Physical death is a separation of the body from the spirit. When a person dies, they don't cease to be. The body stays here. The spirit or soul separates and goes some ways, somewhere. That is physical death. Spiritual death is a separation of people from their creator relationally. It was illustrated in the Garden of Eden. After Adam and Eve sinned, you remember, they hid themselves. That's called spiritual death. Eternal death is a reference to being separated from God for all eternity. And the penalty of all of our sin is death. And this story in the Old Testament illustrated that. They sinned against God and they were dying. But God found a solution, a way out. If they would look upon this pole... They would be healed. They'd be given life. Jesus said the same thing would be true about me. If you look upon me, you will have eternal life. 
Romans 10.9 ties together this second point completely, that the solution is Jesus because of who he was and what he came to do. In Romans 10.9, we read, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, the Greek word for Lord here in the New Testament is a word that refers to Jesus' deity. It was the Greek word that was used to describe God of the Old Testament who went by the name Yahweh. If you confess with your mouth, if you acknowledge that Jesus is God and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, which implies his death and burial as well, it says you will be saved. To be saved is to be delivered from the penalty of our sin. And this gets to the third part of the message that's essential. I said the problem is sin, the solution is Jesus because of who he was and what he came to do. The response that God is looking for is faith or trust. In the illustration that Jesus used from the Old Testament, what did the Israelites need to do in order to find life? What did they need to do in order to be forgiven for the sin that they had committed? Did they need to promise that they would never sin again? Did they need to make some kind of commitment to God? You know, did they need to promise that they'd go to the tabernacle, which might be their equivalent of church every week? What did they have to do? They simply needed to look. They needed to look at the solution that God had provided, which requires faith. See, God said, if you just look upon it, you'll be healed. It would take faith to do that because some might have thought, well, how could looking at a bronze serpent on a pole possibly give me life? They might think that because they didn't have faith. But anyone that did look found life. The same thing is true with Jesus. All that's required for us to have eternal life is to put our trust in him, to look upon the one who hung in our place and for our sins. See, that's what was happening at the cross. The sinless son of God was taken upon himself, the sin of the whole world. He was being executed in our place and for our sin. And he did die and was buried. But he rose again from the dead. And any that will look upon the risen Lord Jesus Christ in faith will be delivered from the penalty of their sin. Jesus gets explicit about that in the very next verse, which is the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. Where we read, for God loved the world in this way, or he so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world that he might condemn the world, namely for its sin, but that the world might be saved through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned. But anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. You see that this kind of ties it all together, how Jesus is God's one and only Son, the Son of God and God the Son, and how he came for the sin of the world, and how he was dying in our place and for our sin. And the response that God is looking for is faith. The problem is sin. We can't fix it. We need a deliverer, a savior. The solution is Jesus because of who he was, the son of God and God the son, and what he came to do, to die in our place and for our sin, 
paying the just penalty for the things we've done wrong. And the response God is looking for is faith. Now this particular message, these three things are reiterated throughout the New Testament. But one place where they're specifically emphasized is in the New Testament book of Romans. Five verses say exactly the same thing. They are Romans 3.23, 6.23, 5.8, Romans 10.9, and Romans 10.13. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's my first point. All have sinned, we all fall short of God's standard of righteousness. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus. But the penalty of our sin is death. That's the problem, separation from God. Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Two applications here this morning, depending on where you're at. Some of you, perhaps today, have never understood what God requires, that it's simply a matter of putting our trust in Jesus Christ as the solution to the problem. If you've never done that, I encourage you to do that today, to put your trust in Jesus Christ, because Jesus is not just the author of eternal life. Again, he's the author of an abundant life, and we need to turn to him. It's a simple thing. Most people do it through a simple prayer. They just acknowledge, I know I've sinned against you. I can't fix it. I need a Savior. And today I want to receive you as my Savior. I put my trust in you. You died in my place and for my sin. And I receive you as my Savior, the one who rose again from the dead. The resurrection, by the way, demonstrates that God accepted the payment on our behalf. But whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Second application is for you, those of you that are already Christians. I want to encourage you to recognize that during the darkest times, we have opportunities to shed the light because we have someone that not only provides for us eternal life, but, but someone that can be with us through the difficulties we face, and people need Jesus, someone with whom they can walk, someone who will go through life with them. And I encourage you to take opportunities to lead people to faith in Christ, helping them to understand these three points that the problem is sin, the solution is Jesus, and the response God's looking for is faith. Now, I began by telling you a story of how we had a revival service, uh, or services at our church, and, and how I decided I was not gonna share the gospel with anyone. I, I was not gonna communicate with anyone my faith. I decided that, but one of the nights during this revival week, the the speaker said something that was a little bit different. He said, tonight, by way of application, I'm not going to ask you to share your faith with anyone. Tonight, I want to ask you to do something else. He said, would you be willing to just pray for your friends and loved ones, just one person for the next month? Would you be willing to pray for one person for the next 30 days by name that they would come to faith in Christ, that God would open their heart and as I sat there listening to this speaker say that, I decided in my mind, well, I could do that. I'm not going to open my mouth about Jesus, but I am willing to pray for someone. And I began to pray for a fellow student named Jeff, who sat right next to me in most of my classes. And for the next two weeks, I prayed for him every day. Really, for the whole month, I prayed for him every day. But about that second week, or maybe the beginning of the third week, something happened. 
I'd happened to bring with me to school, not only my class books, but I had this little booklet that explains how a person gets right with God, a little gospel booklet. They're called gospel tracts. And one day, I pulled out one of my books, my textbooks, and all of a sudden, this little booklet fell out. And, and, and before I even planned to do it, I picked it up. I looked over at my friend Jeff, and I said, do you know for sure whether you'd go to heaven if you were to die? And he said, no. And I said, well, I wonder if I could give you a little booklet that explains how you can know for sure. And he enthusiastically said, yes. And I just handed it to him. A couple days passed. I didn't know what would happen in regard to that. But after a couple days, I ran into Jeff again. I was seating next to him, and I just asked him, did you read the booklet? And he said, yes, I read it. And then he said this. And when I got to the end, there was this little prayer to receive Christ, and I decided to pray that prayer. And I said, so do you now know what would happen to you if you were to die? And he said, yes. And he knew he was a Christian. Although I had not articulated the whole message from beginning to end, God had reached him through the, just the giving of that tract. And something else I learned about this story is that many times when we begin to pray for someone else, God begins to work on our own hearts. Suddenly he gives us the willingness to do that. So I encourage you to be a light, a light in a dark world. And if you've again not put your trust in Christ, to put your trust in him today because he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the source of both life and eternal life. Thank you that you love the world so much that you send your son Jesus to die in our place and for our sin. And that through faith in him alone, we can have eternal life. And, and not just eternal life, but an abundant life and a full life. And we tell you we are grateful. And I ask you to help us in the days ahead to be sensitive to the spiritual opportunities that we might have to communicate our faith with other people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.